This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Uh, before I uh, have you stand so that I can read the passage, uh, the passages really on which the sermon is based, uh, let me briefly say this. This again is our fourth Sunday of Advent. It's our fourth sermon uh, in the Advent series, okay? And so um, basically the Bible talks about Jesus adventing or coming or arriving in three ways. Uh, the Bible would talk about, uh, would use the same slew of words to talk about Jesus's arrivals, not only for when he came as a baby uh, 2,000 years ago, but also when he arrives now in the individual hearts uh, of believers. And then finally, as we've been saying all along, the third advent of Jesus will be at some point in the future uh, when he returns physically. So we discussed this considerably last week. I apologize if it was in a confusing manner, but we discussed it considerably that we live after the first advent, we live, we live before the final advent, and we live right in the middle uh, of the second advent. And so this morning we're making a transition in this series, whereas the past three weeks we were discussing uh, primarily from the Old Testament, we were, we were answering the question, uh, why did Jesus come? Why did he have to come? And then today we're turning our attention to the New Testament in order to begin considering his advents. Okay, so the passages that I'm going to read to you in a moment are from Luke 1 and Matthew 1. They're very famous narratives in the Gospels. In Luke 1, uh, God is preparing the Virgin Mary for the first advent of Jesus. That is, uh, when he came as a child 2,000 plus years ago, as an infant, as a baby. In Matthew 1, God is preparing Joseph, her fiancé, for the exact same reality. And you'll see when read together that God, by his Holy Spirit, intends for them uh, to be understood uh, together. We're going to actually look at the passages and we're going to watch God interact with Joseph and Mary as he gets them ready for Advent. And then we're going to ask ourselves the question, uh, how does God do that for us and in us uh, today? Okay, with that being said, please stand. Uh, We're going to pray aloud together a corporate prayer of illumination. Let's pray. Creator God, may your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and awaken us to the hearing and living of your radiant truth. Through Christ, our victorious Savior. Amen. If you're willing and able, please remain standing. I realize that the uh, reading this morning is relatively long, so if you're willing and able, please stand. From Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we have three points this morning. And the first is much longer than the second and third. The first point is this, the preparation of God's people for the first advent. The second is as follows, the preparation of God's people for the final advent. And then the third is living from the first advent for the final advent. So first, the preparation of God's people for the first advent. The phrase first advent in total is a reference to Jesus's time on earth as a human 2000 plus years ago. But that first advent began at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. Jesus's first advent began when his human life began in the womb. Now the first advent, the conception of Jesus involves a good bit of mystery. By that, I mean this. There are certain truths or facts about the conception of Jesus that are clearly stated in the Bible. But not everything about the conception is crystal clear in the Bible. Here are your facts. Luke 1.31. Gabriel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb. In Matthew 1.20, the angel says, that which is conceived in Mary is from or out of the Holy Spirit. Also, the end of Matthew 1.18 literally reads this way. Mary was found in her womb to have a child out of the Holy Spirit. So we have come to some facts. But I would say there's a lot about those facts that aren't exactly crystal clear. Think about it. If the text was this, that which was conceived in Mary was from or out of Joseph, there wouldn't be any mystery unless the birds and the bees were not a part of your education yet. But as soon as you read that the Holy Spirit is involved, the third person of the Trinity is involved, mystery abounds. What? How? Really? I think it's important to see the clear facts here. And I think it's important at the same time to resist the temptation to know the details. This is why. Luke has a huge theological point to make. 
Luke wants us to understand something incredibly profound. And in order to make his point, he needs us to know some facts. But he writes these facts in such a way to let us know that we don't need clarity with all the details. Luke presents the conception in Mary from the Holy Spirit this way. It's something more than nothing, and it's nothing more than something. If you think that's profound, I made it up. (laughs) If you think it's confusing, I made it up. To start, something more than nothing happened. On the one hand, some are prone to essentially say or think that nothing happened, that there was no interaction between Mary and the Holy Spirit. To some, Mary just woke up one day and she was pregnant. But saying, in effect, that nothing happened doesn't do justice to the text. Look at Luke 1.35. The conception was the result of an interaction described this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon, upon you. There's actually two words for upon in the Greek, and they're redundantly placed here. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow is this word for when one reality that to some degree is physical, when one reality that is some degree physical, when it casts a shadow over another physical reality. In the New Testament, the object casting the shadow can sometimes be a cloud or sometimes be a human. So to say that something, uh, so, so, so something more uh, than happened, uh, let me say it again. So something more than nothing happened but also nothing more than something happened. And so while some are prone to say nothing happened, ignoring what the Bible clearly states, some are prone to say something more than something happened, going way beyond what the Bible states. In other words, some are fond of digressing into inappropriate speculation by making this more physical, more sensual, more romantic than the text would ever allow or indicate. And so the Bible, with reverent reserve, the Bible using delicate expressions, the Bible describes the mystery this way. Something more than nothing happened, but nothing more than something happened. And again, Matthew and Luke, in order to make a huge theological point, clearly state these facts. Here they are. Mary was a virgin. Joseph did not know Mary until she gave birth to Jesus, Matthew 1, 25. The Holy Spirit, in some interaction with Mary, was the other being involved in the conception. And here's the theological point that, that can only be made if you understand all of those facts. Jesus, at his birth, was a holy human. Read again verse 35. Watch how Luke dances around the mystery to make this point. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, it's a word for logic, for that reason, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was a human child conceived, developed, and brought forth by Mary. And yet Jesus was not the biological son of a sinful man. Jesus, due to the mysterious conception, was both God and man. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Think about what we've learned over the last three weeks as to why Jesus had to advent, as to why it had to go down this way. Jesus has to be human so he can defeat Satan, God's ultimate enemy. But he had to be a holy human so that he could withstand all of Satan's temptations and attacks. Therefore, to be a holy human, he couldn't have a human father or he would be born of a sinner born a sinner, and born with a sinful nature. Also, Jesus had to be human so that he could die a sacrificial death in the place of humans, providing humans with forgiveness. 
But at the same time, he had to be a holy human so he could live a holy life in the place of those same humans in order to reestablish righteousness in the land. God couldn't just send an angel to Joseph and Mary and tell them what he wanted their child to do. Jesus' mom had to be human, but his biological dad couldn't be human because he had to be holy. Now we could transition into many different sermons at this point, but the larger point I want to move towards today is this, the preparation of God's people for the first advent. And what I mean by that is this, the preparation of Mary and Joseph for the mystery, mystery I just described that had to go down that way. Think about both passages from 50,000 feet. God is about to do an unprecedented, mysterious, epic work in human history. In fact, God is about to unleash the event that humanity has seen as the ultimate event. God is about to divide human history into B.C. and A.D. And he's going to do it through Mary and Joseph, most likely teenagers. And before he does it, and as he does it, he prepares them for the advent. It's unlike anything else they've known or experienced or could possibly imagine. And so from 50,000 feet, that's what's going on in the passage. But the question is why? Why does God prepare them? Because God, particularly with Joseph, wanted and needed from him a response radically different than what, he would, have, than what it would have been his response in the, in the ordinary response of the world. In fact, with Joseph, God needed a different response than the one he had already made. Look at verse 19 of Matthew 1. It says that he past tense resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 20 is rightly translated by the NIV and others as after he considered these things. It's clearly in the past tense. I have to have you pay attention at this point. The second point is all about us and it's based on this next statement. God needed and wanted a counter-cultural response from Joseph that in the short term would bring public shame and personal suffering but would eventually bring indescribable blessing and honor. Why did God prepare them? He did it to get a response that would be ludicrous apart from the advent, but that would be brilliant in light of the advent. Imagine the scene. Consider your state of mind. You and your father have arranged a marriage with a young woman in your village. The young woman has had little to no choice in the matter as her dad has betrothed her to you. The verb betrothed in Matthew 1.18 is passive. It's been done to her. Luke 1 tells us that the newly betrothed Mary, after the departure of angel Gabriel, hastily fled into the hill country of Judah for at least three months. We don't know exactly what Joseph knows about her reason for being there, that innocently she was there uh, to visit her aunt who was mysteriously pregnant with John the Baptist. We don't know exactly what Joseph knew of that, but what we know that Joseph certainly knew is this. When she came back from that visit, she was pregnant. Verse 18, she was found or discovered to be with child. So you're Joseph, Your wife-to-be, in that culture you could call her, your wife has hastily fled from your village. She comes back pregnant. You know you had nothing to do with the pregnancy. Verse 19, Matthew 1. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was just, which means that he wanted to follow the Old Testament law. So he resolved to divorce her. That was his obligation in the Jewish community. 
but he was also unwilling to make a public example of her. And so he resolved to do this quietly. And in light of the advent, God wanted and needed a radically different response from Joseph than what would have been ordinary in his world. Joseph needed to pick the path of personal suffering and public shame because God's purposes needed to be accomplished and Joseph was to be blessed. And so God prepared him for the advent, the coming, the arrival of Jesus. The world would say, especially in the ancient Near East culture, the world would say, dump her and shame her. Save face. To have your betrothed virgin give that gift to another man was one of the most humiliating things that could happen in any culture, especially that culture. Just about the only thing more shaming and dishonorable than having your betrothed do that to you is to marry your betrothed. The only way for Joseph to save any face at this point is to follow the way of his world and divorce her and to choose whether or not he wants to shame her. And if he doesn't, if he isn't man enough to do that, he will incur more mockery and more shame than he already has. And God says to Joseph, while very few people will ever see reality and while some will never believe it, she didn't have sex with another man while visiting the hill country. She's innocent. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God says to Joseph, I'm about to do something huge. God says to Joseph, there's an advent on the horizon. God says to Joseph, in light of this and with the promise of incredible blessing, I want you today to pick the path of public shame and personal suffering. I mean, think about it. In light of what God asked Joseph to do because of the first advent, the only way this can possibly go down is for him to be shamed and for him to suffer. It cannot possibly go down in an honorable and comfortable fashion. In the light of the world, he's either going to be seen as the man who got her pregnant or he's going to be seen as the man who didn't have the moxie to shame her for shaming him. There's not a whole lot more written about Joseph in the Gospels after this story. Very simply, Joseph is presented in the Bible as the man who courageously did what God commanded because he believed what God said about the advent of Jesus. Now, Point two, let's think about us. Let's make application to us. The preparation of God's people for the final advent. Now, in in addition to some theological clarity, is there more for us to look at in these passages? Is there more to apply to us from these passages? Would God ever do this to us? Would he ever tell us in advance that something huge is gonna happen and command us and invite us and encourage us to live counterculturally, mock worthily in light of it. First, God has a habit in the Bible of telling his people to do things that will at first appear bizarre, but then over time be understood to be brilliant. God has a habit in the Bible of showing up to his people and telling them to do things that at first appear to be bizarre, but then over time are understood to be brilliant because God shows up and did whatever he said he was gonna do. Think about Noah. God tells Noah, go build a massive ark unlike anything ever seen or ever experienced in this world. world. God tells Noah, go and fill that ark with a whole bunch of food and try and get every kind of animal in that ark. For years and years and years, Noah abandons the ordinary life of his culture and he endures mockery and shame. Why? 
Because God sent his message to him, telling him about the future. And in light of the future visitation of God, what he was now doing is bizarre, but in time will be seen to be brilliant. Think about the Israelites and the Passover in Egypt. God, through his messenger, tells them to do lots of crazy things, like have each house slaughter an expensive animal, even though you're poor servants. Paint the doorposts of every house in blood. Pack your overnight bag and put on some traveling clothes. Spend a lot of money on a bitter meal and eat it as fast as you can. Can you imagine how bizarre that looked preparing for the Lord's coming on Passover night? But in time, the bizarre becomes brilliant. How loving of God to have the habit of showing up to his people before he does extraordinary things to prepare his people to be blessed in those things and not cursed by them. So would God ever do this to us? His New Testament church, this pattern of asking his people to be bizarre in light of massive and mysterious future events, to be more specific in the season and in the sermon, has God told us that that in the future there will be another physical advent of Jesus Christ? Has God told us to behave in a way that is contrary to our world, crazy and mock-worthy in our world, if the advent doesn't happen? Absolutely. God, in his word, has prepared us, his people, for the final advent. One of the primary themes of the New Testament is to live as one who truly believes that Jesus is coming back. And that when he comes back, he will, Revelation 11, reward his servants for faithful living. The New Testament invites us, like Joseph, to live bizarre lives in the present world because of what we know about the future. Each one of us, at every moment of our lives, has a choice to make. We can either live as though this world is all there is and therefore fit into this world, or we can join Joseph in believing and living as if Jesus is about to advent. And when he does, he will turn everything upside down. Now, Until he comes, we will appear bizarre. But when he gets here, we will appear brilliant. In the way we think about and live out our jobs, our relationships, our families, our money, our time, in the way we think about and live out everything, we can either benefit uh, in the here and now by trying to invest that reality into this life, or we can choose suffering and shame in this life in order to have eternal benefit in the next at the final advent of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the Christians are to be pitied if Jesus doesn't come back. The presumption of Paul in that passage is that our lives in this world, our chosen lives of suffering and shame, are to be pitied if Jesus doesn't come back. But if he comes back, he will make the bizarre brilliant. Peter in 2 Peter 3 expects us to be mocked by the world because we so obviously, so publicly, and so counterculturally live for the return of Jesus. I can either have this $1 riskily invested in this world or I can give this $1 away and turn it into a $100 guaranteed investment in the next. But if I do that, I will not fit into this world as much as if I don't. I can either make this relationship comfortably about this world or I can make it uncomfortable for now but eternally comfortable in the next. I can either make my job or calling about my benefit and my success in this world or I can sacrificially make it about other people and other places now for my benefit in the next. Would God do this to us? Would he send his messengers to us and call for for a crazy life from us 
Because he's going to Advent. Absolutely. I would say one of the top three themes of the New Testament is the call to crazy living in light of the unknown timing, but the imminent return and the final advent of Jesus Christ. How are we doing with that? Are we thanking God for the kindness and love that informs us of the final advent and how to live in light of it? Are we believing him and living in line with what he has revealed to us, even when it means suffering and shame in this life? How are we doing with this? Are we responding as well as Joseph and Mary did in our passage? Look back to the passages. Look at the end of each text. Mary in Luke 1, 38, after hearing of Jesus' advent from God's messenger, says submissively, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Joseph's response is recorded in Matthew 1, 24 and 25. The man who had already decided to divorce Mary, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took her. He did not know her until Jesus was born. And he named him Jesus. Are we responding as well as Joseph and Mary with our money, with our time, with our marriage, with our children, with our sexuality, with our jobs? Are we living comfortably for the here and now or uncomfortably for the eternal future? If we're not doing well, why not? Third and finally for today, living from the first advent for the final advent. Living from the first advent for the final advent. In short, we will live for the final advent of Jesus to the extent that we live out of the first advent of Jesus. Said differently, the extent to which we live for the here and now is based on the extent to which we've lost sight of the first advent. The extent to which we live for the here and now is based on the extent to which we've lost sight of the gracious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Look at Luke one twenty-eight. Look at what Gabriel says to Mary. Literally, greetings, O graced one. The Greek word there is a word that in the English is favored or graced. It's the common New Testament word for grace. Greetings, O graced one. The Lord is with you. Look at Mary's response, verse 29. She was greatly troubled, not by the visit of the angel, but she was troubled at the saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Evidently, it was this alarming and fearful thing to have an angel from heaven tell her that she has experienced grace and that God is with her. And so Gabriel repeats himself. Verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found literally grace with God. What was, what was Mary captivated by? What did Mary have a mindful of when she said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word unmerited favor, grace, the presence of God, the word of a savior. What about Joseph? What changed his mind? I mean, what takes Joseph from resolving to divorce her uh, to to, to going to the place where, where he takes massive public shame upon himself in embracing her? Verse 21, his mind is full of this. She will bear a son and you, Joseph, will call his name Jesus, for since because he will save his people from their sins. 
Jesus, of course, is the Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew Joshua, which of course means the Lord is salvation. What changed Joseph's mind? What propelled Joseph into countercultural living? What made him choose to respond so well to the command of God? The word of a gracious salvation from his own sins. So following the pattern, what will compel us to live contrary to the world and in obedience to Jesus? We will live for the final advent now to the extent that we live from the first advent. Last thought for today. Can I remind you that almost as often as the New Testament talks about grace as a posture, the New Testament talks about grace as a power. Almost as often as grace is presented as God's posture towards sinner, grace is presented as God's power for sinners to live like Christians. It's like solar panels. Solar panels set their face towards the sun and they receive what they need from the sun. But then the solar panel is energized, if you will, never turning its face from the sun, but energized by the sun and able to give out what it was designed to give away. This is how the Bible talks about grace. For example, 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul tells Timothy, who is called by God into a sacrificial ministry, he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Humbly set your face toward the grace of God and be empowered for radical and sacrificial living by that same grace. It is true that grace is ours for how poorly we've lived, but the Bible says that that to the extent we experience that grace, we stop living poorly. We are able to live radically for the final advent of Jesus to the extent we really live from the first advent of the same. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you're not done saving us. We thank you that you're saving us now by your Holy Spirit and you will save us and deliver us into glory. God, we thank you that you've told us how to live now so that we get the most out of glory. Thank you that you've taught us now how to live so that our experience of Jesus forever is all the more full. We thank you that you're not done saving us. We praise you that you do not say to us, obey so that God will love us, that you say, obey because I love you. Would you help our minds get around the fact that we don't have to live radically to get your acceptance, but we can live radically because we have it. Holy Spirit, would you please come and give us the wisdom of the kingdom of God? Would you come and give us the perspective of the kingdom of God? Would you allow us to see the things of this world and how empty they are and enable us to see how full and true and beautiful all that is that is from you in your eternal kingdom? In your name we pray, Jesus. 